0: It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Well, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And uh, today we will continue our journey with Archbishop Sheen as he teaches us about communism. And, of course, uh, he wrote a beautiful book in 1948 called Communism and the Conscience of the West. And that book came from a series of reflections that he gave uh, during his Catholic Hour broadcast in the, uh, I want to say, the early part of 1947. And so, while we've been replaying some of those reflections uh, for you now. And so, uh, today we will cover the topic of communism and women and follow that up with a reflection on communism and the family. And of course, uh, I think the way Fulton Sheen uh, teaches, uh, is very relatable. Uh, He gives stories and um, again, he's speaking out of love, love for the family, love for women. Uh, Again, he doesn't want us to be duped by communism. And again, it is a constant attack, a constant uh, petition, I think, from the uh, dark side to say, come and uh, embrace these communistic philosophies. And so, uh, again, Fulton Sheen will help us to resist those temptations. And so, uh, may I present to you, as I always do, this uh, great communicator that uh, has touched the lives of uh, millions of people, uh, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen as uh, he gives a reflection from his Catholic Hour broadcast on the topic of communism and women. Please enjoy.
1: We present now the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen, who delivers the sixth address in his series generally entitled, Light Your Lamps. Today, Monsignor Sheen speaks on the subject, Communism and Woman. Friends. Seventeen years ago today, we gave the first broadcast on the Catholic Hour. And inasmuch as we have dedicated all of these broadcasts to our Blessed Mother, it is fitting that today's subject, Communism and Woman, be treated with special reference to her. The proudest boast of Communism is that it has finally emancipated Woman by making her the equal of man at work. As Karl Marx, who was the founder of communism, wrote, Differences of ages and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity. All are instruments of labor. The key word here is instrument, because it reduces a human being to the dignity of a monkey wrench. The communist assumption is that woman was free just as soon as she became available for economic production. One of the paradoxes of our irrational world is that today woman is glorified when she produces an atomic bomb which destroys life, but not when she produces life. It is like praising violinists for making sewer pipes instead of melodies. At the very beginning of the Communist Revolution in Russia, a decree was passed that all women between the ages of 17 and 32 became the property of the state and the rights of husbands were abolished. The reference for this and other statements in today's broadcast will be sent you free if you write for the references. In keeping with the idea that liberation means working in a factory rather than in a home, we read in a Soviet book that was published in 1935, all the local communist organizations received orders to call up six million housewives and attach them to production. Many of the women refused to go, but they were forced into this emancipation. They began working in mines and sewers and in the manipulation of pneumatic drills. A few years ago, 23% of the miners of Russia were women. The Soviet poets composed ballads for the women to sing as they were liberated and went into work in the factories. Now, I know that this does not sound like poetry, but this is Soviet poetry. Formerly, women only knew how to cook soup and porridge. Now they go to the foundry. At the foundry, it is nicer. This idea of the emancipation of women through industrialization is not altogether a communist idea, but like many others has been derived from our Western bourgeois capitalistic civilization which thought of the liberation of woman in terms of equality with men. The two basic errors of both communism and a capitalistic liberal civilization on this subject are first women were never emancipated until modern times. Secondly equality means the right of a woman to do a man's work. First it is not true as liberalism and communism assert, that women began to be emancipated only in modern times and in direct proportion to the decline of religion. The fact is that woman's subjection began after the 17th century with the breakup of Christendom and took on a positive form at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Under the Christian civilization, women enjoyed rights and privileges, honors and dignities which have since been swallowed up by the machine age. For example, in the Middle Ages, in the days of faith, 85 guilds in England. There were, and out of the 85, 72 had women members on an equal basis with men. In Paris, there were 15 guilds reserved exclusively for women, and 80 of the Parisian guilds were mixed. Nothing is more erroneous historically than the belief that it was our modern age which recognized professional women. Up until the 17th century in England, women functioned in business perhaps even more than they do today. In fact, so many women were in business in those days that it was provided by law that the husband should not be responsible for her debts. Between 1553 and 1640, 10% of the publishing in England was done by women. Because the homes did their own weaving, cooking, and laundry, it has been estimated that women in pre-industrial days were producing half the goods required by society. In the Middle Ages, women were as well educated as men. And it was not until after the 17th century that women were barred from universal education. And then at the time of the Industrial Revolution... All of the activities of women were curtailed. And the machine took over the business of production and man moved into the factory. Then came the loss of the legal rights of women, which reached its fullness in Blackstone, who pronounced women's civil death in law. And as these disabilities under liberalism and industrialism continued, woman felt the loss of her freedom. And rightly so, because she felt that she had been hurt by man who robbed her of her legal rights. She reacted, and she fell into the opposite error of believing that she ought to proclaim herself the equal of man in all things. And this equality was defined as absolute and unconditioned sex equality with men. These ideas were incorporated into the first resolution for sex equality passed in Seneca Falls, New York, in 1848. And the resolution read, Resolve that woman is man's equal, was intended to be so by the creator, and the highest good of the race demands that she be recognized as such. Now this brings us to that second air of the bourgeois capitalistic communistic theory of women namely the failure to make a distinction between mathematical and proportional equality. Mathematical equality implies exactness of remuneration. For example, two men who work the same job in the same factory should receive equal pay. Proportional equality means that each should receive his pay according to his function. In a family, for example, all the children should be cared for by the parents. But this does not mean that because 19-year-old Joan gets an evening gown with an organdy trim, that the parents should give 7-year-old Tommy exactly the same thing. Women, in seeking to regain some of the rights and privileges they had lost in Christian civilization, thought of equality in mathematical language feeling themselves overcome by a monster called man, they identified freedom and equality with the right to do a man's job. All the psychological, social, and other advantages which were peculiar to women were ignored until the inanities of the bourgeois world reached their climax in communism, where a woman was said to be emancipated the moment she went to work in a mine. And the result has been... That woman's imitation of man and her flight from motherhood have developed neurosis and psychosis which have reached an alarming proportion in our modern civilization. The Christian civilization never stressed equality in the mathematical sense, but only in the proportional sense, for equality is wrong when it makes a woman a poor imitation of a man. Now she is man's mathematical equal So he no longer stands when she comes into the room He no longer gives her a seat in the bus He no longer takes off his hat in an elevator The other day in a New York subway A man gave a woman his seat And she fainted When she was revived She thanked him And then he fainted Now, wherein lies the solution to this problem of woman who has been a victim to man and a victim to the machine? The solution lies in a return to the Christian concept, wherein stress is placed not on equality but on equity. There's a world of difference between the two. Equality is law. It is mathematical, abstract, universal, indifferent to circumstances and conditions. Equity is love, mercy, understanding, sympathy, charity. Now applying this distinction to women, we are saying that equity and not equality should be the basis of her claims. Equity goes beyond equality by claiming superiority in certain aspects of life. Equity is the perfection of equality, not a substitute. It has the advantage of recognizing the specific difference between man and woman, which equality does not recognize. As a matter of fact, man and woman are not equal in sex. They are quite unequal. And it is only because they are unequal that they complement one another. The violin and the bow are not equal. That is why they produce music. Each has a superiority of function. Men and women are equal inasmuch as they have the same rights and liberties, the same final goal of life, and both have been redeemed by our divine Savior, but they are unequal in function. It is that truth which solves the problem. The Christian ages generally left law and justice to men and equity to women. They interpreted the Old Testament story of Esther to mean that God will reserve to himself the reign of justice and law... but to marry his mother will be given the reign of mercy. During the Christian ages, our Blessed Mother bore a title... which we rarely hear about today... and that is Our Lady of Equity. There is a statue to her in the Cathedral of Chartres in France. Stretching through the nave of the cathedral are two sets of priceless stained-glass windows. One of these sets was given by the family of Blanche of Castile, the other by the family of Pierre de Dreux. Both families seem to carry on across the very heart of that cathedral a lovely kind of civil war, both interceding for their children. And over the main altar sits the Virgin Mary, the Lady of Equity, with a holy child on her knees, presiding over the court, listening serenely to pleas for mercy in behalf of their sons. This is woman's special glory, mercy, pity, understanding, intuition of human needs. Call it anything you please. It is equity and love in womanhood which will save a world wherein man's law and justice have broken down. Even our peace today is based upon the power of three nations, rather than on the justice of God. And when shall come devotion to causes if women who are capable of greater devotion than men insist only on cold equality? How shall wars be stopped and the taking of human life if women like men trust only in law. But if women, in the full consciousness of their creativeness, say to the world, it takes us 20 years to make a man, and we rebel against wars every generation, snuffing out the lives of those that have passed through the portals of our flesh, why such an attitude would do more for the peace of the world than all the covenants and pacts based upon expediency and deceit. I repeat, it is equity and love that will restore a world wherein justice and law have collapsed. And the reason there is little love now is because in the human order there's never any love between equals. There may be justice between equals but no affection. If man is the equal of woman, then she has rights. But what heart ever lived on rights? All love demands inequality or superiority. The lover is always on his knees. The beloved must always be on the pedestal. Whether it be man or woman, the one must always consider himself or herself as undeserving of the other. Even God humbled himself in his love to win man, saying that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And man in his turn approaches that loving Savior in communion with the words, Lord, I am not worthy. The specifically feminine qualities are devotedness and creativeness, No woman is happy unless she has someone for whom she can sacrifice herself. Not in a slavish way, but in the way of love. And added to the devotedness is her love of creativeness. A man is afraid of dying, but a woman is afraid of not living. Life to a man is personal. Life to a woman is otherness. She thinks less in terms of perpetuation of self... More in terms of perpetuation of others... So much so that in her devotedness... She is willing to sacrifice herself utterly for others... And she has a far greater capacity for sacrifice than man... To the extent that a career gives no opportunity for either... She becomes hardened... And if these qualities cannot be given an outlet in the home and the family... They can nevertheless find substitution in works of charity, virtuous living, and in the seven corporal works of mercy. The level of any civilization is always the level of its womanhood. That is because there is a great difference between knowing and loving. In knowing something, you bring it down to the level of your own understanding. An abstract principle of physics can be understood by an ordinary mind only by examples. But in loving we always go out to meet the demands of the one loved. If you love music, you have to submit to its laws and its disciplines. When man loves woman, it follows the nobler the woman, the nobler the love. The higher the demands by the woman, the more worthy a man must be. That is why woman is the measure of the level of our civilization. And it is for our age to decide whether woman shall claim equality in sex and the right to work at the same lathe or whether she will claim equity and give to the world that love which no one else can give. In these pagan days, when women want to be only the equal of men, they've lost a great deal of respect. And to the lady of equity, therefore, we must all look once again as even those who have the faith must see fulfilled in her those spiritual functions which no priest can ever perform. Queen, mother, and woman. Christianity does not ask the modern woman to be exclusively a Martha or a Mary, but both. For that is Mary herself. She breaks the shell of woman's isolation from the world and puts woman back into the wide ocean of humanity as she who is the cosmopolitan woman gives the cosmopolitan man for which giving all generations shall call her blessed. Great men we need, of course. Men like Paul, who with a two-edged sword will cut away the ties that bind down the energies of the world. Men like Peter, who will let the broad stroke of their challenge ring out on the shield of the world's hypocrisies. Great men like John, who with a loud voice will arouse the world from the sleek dream of unheroic repose. But we need women too, to restore equity and love. Women like Mary of Cleophas at the foot of the cross, who will raise up sons, who will hold white hosts, in adoration of a heavenly father. Women like Magdalene, who was also at the foot of the cross, who will take the tangled skeins of a seemingly wrecked and ruined life and weave out of them the beautiful tapestry of saintliness and holiness. And above all, women like Mary, who stood at the foot of the cross, that lady of equity, who will inspire others to leave the lights and glamours of the world for the shades and the shadows of the cross where saints are made. And when women of this kind return to save the world, not with equality, but with equity and love, then we shall salute them, not as the modern woman, once our superior, now our equal, but as the Christian woman closest to the cross on Good Friday, and first at the tomb on Easter morn. God love you.
0: You are listening to FM 98.5 CKWR, Canada's first community radio station. We now return to Bishop Sheen Presents. Well, my good friends, I hope you enjoyed the wisdom of Archbishop Sheen there as he addressed us and um, spoke again of the evils of communism and if you'd like to have your own copy of the book, Communism and the Conscious of the West, may I recommend that you purchase the book through uh, Tan Publishing. Uh, it's a very handsome edition, a hardcover, again, uh, containing not only this reflection you just heard, but many others. And again, it is a book that I think that every Home should have because uh, communism will continue to uh, try to um, make its way into our society, and we need to know how to refute uh, communism. And so, again, Fulton Sheen penned this book in 1948, and it is available through Tan Books, and you can find them on their website. At tanbooks.com. And they have a number of other Sheen titles that are very popular, and so there's a great uh, resource there. All right, we will have uh, Archbishop Sheen now give a second reflection today uh, on the topic of communism and the family. And so uh, may I invite you just to relax and enjoy this great communicator of the faith and uh, of holy wisdom, the Venerable Archbishop Sheen as he gives this reflection on Communism and the Family. Please enjoy.
1: Friends, in this radio series up to the present, we've been rather critical of Communism. It is now time for us to plead that America learn one of the most important lessons that Communism has to teach us. It is not in the field of economics, because Russia has a very low standard of living. It is not in the domain of politics, because everywhere communism has taken root, it has repressed freedoms and created a slave state. But Russia can teach us much about the family. For here, Russia is now on the side of the angels. Curiously enough, on this subject, communism has been most successful at that point where it has most completely repudiated itself. It is most right where it has been most wrong. It has been most successful where it has admitted its greatest failure. Communism in the beginning set out to destroy the family. But without ever blinking even a red eyelid it has now come to affirm in practice at least the Christian position of the family. In order to appreciate and understand this complete turnabout face of communist theory and practice, we ought first to consider communism's early attitude toward the family and then its present and changed position. The communist manifesto teaches that the family reposes on capital or individual gain and states, therefore, that the family will disappear with capital. If there were any children from any unions... The state was to take charge of the education of the children. When Russia became communist and began to put this philosophy into practice, the communist theory of morality was known as the glass of water theory. As Madame Colin Tai, the Soviet delegate to the League of Nations, put it, love is a glass of water one swallows to satisfy a thirst. You drink the water and forget the glass. So you enjoy the pleasure and forget the person. The matrimonial codes of 1918 and 1927 of Russia affirmed all children belong to the state. The family code of 1918 declared that all church marriages were invalid and could be dissolved at the will of either party simply by sending in a postcard to the registration office. The 13th Congress of the Communist Party even described the family as the formidable stronghold of all the turpitudes of the old regime. No reason was required for the separation of husband and wife, which broke down all distinction between legitimate and illegitimate children. The young were encouraged to spy on their parents and report them to the communist authorities at the least sign of fascism. Oh, incidentally, since a Russian communist journalist Recently, defined fascism as anti-communism. You have the tip-off on writers, journalists, and commentators. All who use that word anti-fascist now are either communists or fellow travelers. Well, inasmuch as the labor laws required that a person was obliged to accept any job that was given to him by the state, for under communism there's only one employer, and that is the state. It often happened that the husband was given a job in one city and the wife in another. The labor board settled this difficulty by decreeing that either spouse could find a partner in the new place of occupation. Abortion clinics were established by the state throughout the country, and every available means was used to weaken the family. And soon communist philosophy, which was already wrong in theory, because the family is not founded on capitalism, now began to prove itself wrong in practice. Russia began counting heads, or at least those that should have been heads. And lo and behold, in Moscow alone, only 57,000 children were born in 1934, while 154,000 abortions were performed. In the villages, there were 242,000 births, but 324,000 abortions. This ratio of 3 to 1 in favor of death was accentuated by divorces. One of the Moscow dailies is Vestia of July the 4th, 1935 stated. I'm quoting it verbatim. In Moscow, in the first five months of 1935, there were 38% more divorces than registered marriages. In May, the number jumped to 44%. It is about time we declared that the frivolity in union is a crime and that marital infidelity is an offense against the morals of a socialist regime. Homeless children were now roaming the streets, stealing, assaulting, killing. The wife of Lenin estimated their number at seven millions. So great was crime and juvenile delinquency that on April the 7th, 1935, the Council of Commissars one of them being Molotov, decreed for certain crimes the death penalty for children 12 years of age and above. It could not be said that the vicious practices of these children were due to counter-revolutionary influences or capitalistic propaganda, for all of these children belonged to the generation that was born after the revolution. Now because of these facts, At this point, the communists began to repudiate communism. As Lenin once saw that collectivism was wrong since it brought on starvation, and he gave a measure of private property back to the people. So now the Soviets see that the disintegration of the family is the disintegration of the nation. Every single social practice it once propagated, it now condemns, such as abortion, Divorce, free love. The state now denies responsibility for children. Affirms in its place parental authority. Novels begin appearing, such as The Third Front by Shubin, showing the evil effects of divorce and abortion, and reaffirming the maternal instinct too long ignored and repudiated. The government ordered conferences to be held everywhere glorifying family life. The communist press that ridiculed marriage 15 years before now writes, and I'm quoting a Soviet newspaper, one of the basic rules of communist morals is the strengthening of the family. The right to divorce is not a right to sexual laxity. A poor husband and father cannot be a good citizen. People who abuse the freedom of divorce should be punished. And more startling still in this statement is the official journal of the Commissariat of Justice, which affirms the perpetuity of the marriage bond in these words. Marriage is of positive value only if the partner see in it a lifelong union. So-called free love is a bourgeois invention and has nothing in common with the principles of conduct of a Soviet citizen. Moreover, marriage receives its full value for the state only if there is progeny. And consorts experience the highest happiness of parenthood. After this statement, the Soviet government in 1936 begins manufacturing wedding rings. Postcard divorces are abolished. Measures are taken to make divorce very difficult and rare. Fees for divorce are raised from 3 rubles to 2,000. And as the communist press states, and I quote it, silly girls will think it over twice before marrying a man with 20 or 30 divorce records. The so-called divorce distinctions, bourgeois distinctions, too, between legitimate and illegitimate children reappeared in Soviet law. Abortion clinics are abolished. Abortion becomes identified with homicide. Anyone counseling abortion is sentenced to two years' imprisonment. Articles appeared in the newspapers telling of its harmful effects. Children who under earlier communist regime were told to spy on their parents are now told, and I quote the Soviet newspaper, one must respect and love his parents even though they are old-fashioned and do not like the young communist league. These began to be paid to mothers with large families. Stalin began to have his pictures taken with children and one day appeared in one of Moscow's gardens with his own children, the majority of Soviet citizens up to this time, not knowing that he had any children. Further references on these points will be sent you free in an elaborated text if you desire it. And thus Russia, you see, after 20 years of communism in practice, rejects its entire philosophy of the family. But more important than this complete repudiation of its ideology is the fact that it has also repudiated the class as the unit of society. As the Soviet Constitution quotes sacred scripture without knowing it, it really does. It quotes St. Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians. So now communism in its greatest defeat proclaims the victory of the family over the class, the person over the proletariat, the fireside and the child over the hammer and the sickle. And that brings us to the point that we made at the beginning of this broadcast, that America ought to learn a great lesson from Soviet Russia. There is no doubt that today the philosophy of America regarding the family is almost the same as Russia's between 1917 and 1935, namely divorce, belief in it, free love, and then a queer system which, in a compound word, rejects both birth and control. When the divorce rate in 30 major cities in our country is one divorce for every two marriages, When a nation has 520,000 divorces in one year, as we have, when in one city there are five divorces for every six marriages, there are unmistakable signs that America is rotting from within. It is now a firmly established fact that much of the neuroses and psychoses in modern woman is due to her fear of motherhood her flight from the fulfillment of a high vocation to which God has called her. And the reason, too, for the instability of man is due to a flight from fatherhood. Divorce is an expression of unhappiness and is almost always preceded by a state of mental disequilibrium. Eighty-three percent of the divorces in the United States come from marriages in which there are no children. Education is not the cure because women with a college education are failing to reproduce themselves by 45%. And those with less education, high school graduates, are failing by 21%. What will happen to us if we continue to try to make a success out of that which Russia found to be a failure, namely the legalized decay of family life? Apart from all moral and religious considerations, two disastrous consequences will follow. First of all, we will become a nation of traitors. If we reach a state where 50% of the married couples feel that they can throw overboard pledged loyalty to homes in order to suit their own pleasure and convenience, then the hour is struck when citizens will throw overboard loyalty to country. When a Mrs. White is ready to call herself Mrs. Black, then it will only be a minute before Americans will be willing to call themselves Soviets. Let America beware. The traitors to the home today are the traitors to the nation tomorrow. And this is no idle talk about traitors. And perhaps even now, if it could be made public, we might discover a betrayal of national secrecy which would rival the Canadian story. But it should be no great surprise. A people who will not be loyal to a home will not be loyal to a flag. And secondly, the decline in family life is intrinsically bound up with decline in democracy. Here we understand democracy in the philosophical sense as a system of government which recognizes the sovereign worth of a man. But where in all the world is this dogma of man better preserved and practiced than in the family? Everywhere else, man may be reverenced for what he can do or for what he has. But in the family, a person is valued because he is. Existence is worth in the home, not possessions nor influence. That is why the crippled and the sick are given more affection in a home than those who normally provide for its subsistence. The family is the training school, the novitiate for democracy. And when men and women reach a point where they are no longer interested in watching a seed grow that they have planted or caring for its flower when they can no longer see that more than the heady joys in each other's body is the thrill of seeing a life grow that they begot, when they are more concerned about increasing the ciphers in their bank account than obeying the primitive impulse to create and multiply, then know ye that a day has dawned when a thing is more important than a person. And then you prepare the way For a man who begins to be valued because of what he can do for a race, and that is Nazism. Or a state, and that is fascism. Or for a revolutionary class, and that is communism. In the family alone shall our citizens learn that there is other wealth than paper wealth. Paper money. Paper stocks. Paper joys. Namely, the tingling, vibrating wealth of children. Children. The unbreakable bond between husband and wife, the pledge of democracy, and the future heirs of the kingdom of heaven. From a natural point of view, and by natural I mean here, rooted in the eternal law of God, there is no doubt that family life is much higher in Russia than in the United States. Russia has stopped its disruption at the source, but we have not. There is every indication that our marital patterns will go on with increasing disorganization until marriages will be only shadows of real unions for life. It may very well be that Almighty God, looking down on the world, is smiling benignantly on the family in Russia. For like a repentant sinner, it is already in this one respect turned back to him. But he may be frowning on us For our pride in thinking that we can snap our fingers at his law and be strong and at peace. Our Lord once told the story of a father who sent two sons into the field. One said, I go, but he went not. The other said, I go not, but he went. We in America are like the first son. We say, yes, we go. We are Christian and we read his gospel in church on Sunday What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And then for six days a week, we tear asunder that bond that symbolizes union of Christ and his church. And Russia, on the other hand, said, I go not. But later on, it went. And for this was that son praised by the Lord. Our choice is very clear. There are two kinds of barbarism that we have to meet. Active barbarism from without, which is communism, and passive barbarism from within, which is the decay of our national life through the family. The second is more insidious, because history reveals that 16 out of 19 nations that have fallen from the beginning of Christianity have decayed from within. It is this passive barbarism from within which makes nations the prey to the active barbarism from without. Lincoln once said that he was never afraid of America being conquered from without, but he was afraid of it being rotted from within. And God in his mercy has granted to our generation a double incentive toward peace and order and prosperity. The first is his gospel, the second is Russia. His gospel teaches us that happiness will come if we live rightly. Russia teaches us the misery that will come if we live wrongly. At no other time in history has God so clearly marked his highways and his burnt out and washed out bridges. If you will not let Christ in the church teach you what is right, then please let Russia teach you what is wrong. And please God as it is now teaching us that we were wrong in weakening the home may it one day teach us that we also are wrong in forgetting our God. And to the hastening of that day may I ask that all our listeners who know the rosary will recite it daily for the conversion of Russia. God love you.
0: You are listening to FM 98.5 CKWR, Canada's first community radio station. We now return to Bishop Sheen Presents. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed these two reflections presented today by Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And uh, again, I'll remind you of that book, uh, Communism and the Conscience of the West, uh, a a classic uh, from 1948 and uh, been reprinted uh, a number of times. But uh, again, the edition that I'm really enjoying... Uh, is from Tan Books, and um, they've just re-released that book this year, a handsome hardcover edition. Uh, Again, just um, one of these things where you just say, you know what, Um, I need to read about communism. And, you know, you don't think, you don't wake up in the morning, I think, and say, boy, I really need a good book on communism. But, you know, it doesn't go away. It seems to be uh, in being taught at university campuses. And um, I know sometimes I had a a little debate with a university student about communism. And, um, you know, the student said, oh, yeah, communism is uh, uh, like the care bears, you know. Uh, Sharing is caring. And we're going to all share our stuff. And then I opened up uh, a little book I had Uh, with some notes from uh, Fulton Sheen. And I brought to uh, the students' attention that uh, communism usually involves uh, confiscation. Uh, It's the taking of your property uh, by the state. And, of course, they want to own you uh, body, soul, property, everything. And, um, Again, uh, the students' eyes were open. So, again, I think Fulton uh, Sheen—he explains it in such a beautiful way. uh, in the chapter after chapter of just um, nuggets of wisdom, and so again, it's a beautiful edition. This um, new release uh, of Communism and the Conscience of the West by Tan Books, and you'll be glad uh, to have it. And of course, um, there's all the books that I've put together. Over the years, it's um, been a labor of love for me. Um, People who know my story know that I uh, have uh, worked for uh, Sheen's cause for canonization and have uh, sat on the board of directors uh, for uh, the cause and uh, the good folks in Peoria. And uh, one of the um, missions that we provide is the mission to uh, making sure that Fulton Sheen's uh, 66 books and his many uh, radio transcripts and um, other—I uh, uh, want to say—publications <laughs> are uh, in circulation, uh, that they don't, um, you know, end up on the shelf never to be seen, you know, for years, and so uh, been able to re-release a number of lost works, um, books that haven't been seen in 70 and 80 years. And, uh, of course, I have 30 uh, Fulton Sheen books under my uh, belt now, and you do it for a couple of years, you you get to re-release a number of books, and so uh, they're out there. And um, I'm grateful to my publisher, Sophia Institute Press, uh, for uh, helping me to compile five different anthologies. Uh, These are collections of Sheen's writings on God's love, the seven last words, the sacraments and prayer. And my latest book, uh, War and Peace, which is uh, Fulton Sheen's writing during the war years. And so, again, lots there. And you can uh, find out more on the website, uh, bishopsheentoday.com. And there you can uh, look at all the books, but you can also watch videos for hours and hours and hours. And, of course, uh, there's all the uh, audio archives of shows that we did back in 2012 and right through up to today. So, uh, again, if you like to listen to Fulton Sheen, uh, the website, BishopSheenToday.com, is a great place to visit. All right, uh, what else? (laughs) I don't want to sound like an infomercial, you know. I just like to be able to plug people in uh, to find Sheen. And uh, because, again, he has touched the lives of... Uh, hundreds of thousands of souls, if not millions. And I think of all the converts I've met uh, to the faith uh, because of Fulton Sheen's wisdom. So uh, including my dad, my dad is a convert because of Bishop Sheen. So uh, I am grateful to God uh, for the work that he did uh, on my father You know, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So uh, he was listening to him when as was a young child on the radio and of course uh watched him on television and was uh convinced that uh becoming catholic was um it wasn't dangerous it was actually uh, a good safe place and uh again god rest his soul he is um hopefully enjoying uh again uh, the beatific, beatific vision with our good friend archbishop sheen uh, God rest his soul also, and let us continue to pray uh, for his intercession in our lives. And um, that's the beauty of having saints and blesseds and venerables. We can pray to them and ask for their help. And, uh, of course, there has been many miracles attributed uh, to the intercession of Fulton Sheen and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's keep praying. And, you know, as Fulton Sheen said uh, at the end of that last a uh, little uh, broadcast we had um, his recording on talking about the family he said uh, remind us that we need to pray the rosary every day for the conversion of Russia and so it was true back in 1947 when that uh, recording was produced and it's true today in the year 2022 we need to continue to pray for Russia so uh, my friends let us pick up our rosary beads and uh, say our prayers because uh, we we need to. We need to. Uh, prayer is the key. It really is. And speaking of prayer, may I remind you to come back uh, with me at 9 o'clock to pray the rosary together and the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. But uh, before then, we'll enjoy uh, Bishop Robert Barron and, of course, my good friend Pat Murphy from Joyful Country as he um, shares some great music with us. And he'll open his Bible and share the scriptures with us too. And so uh, please stay tuned for that. I'll lead you out with a little bit of music. And uh, of course, uh, again, thank you for uh, being uh, part of our family. And um, I like to call this the School of Sheen because we're always learning together. Uh, But still, uh, again, it is great to be a part of the CKWR family. And we are grateful for your financial and prayerful support over the years. God love you, everyone. We'll see you next week. Take care.